You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Thanks, Lynn. Well, I had a note just down here. Thanks, Lynn. I had a note on this title slide to pray, but I think Lynn's done a lot of praying for me, so thanks, Lynn. So, prayer is an important aspect that you'll see a little bit more about, or you'll hear a little bit more about through this section of the Gospel of John. So, we're up to, we're up to chapter 5 in the Gospel of John. Chapter 5 is an interesting chapter. Are you ready for the unexpected? Quite some time ago there was a road safety campaign along the lines of are you ready for the unexpected and this this campaign in the UK obviously had a similar theme. Be prepared for the unexpected. Of course that old campaign tagline always confused me because when I thought of the unexpected events on the road I thought of meteorites crashing right in front of my car and of course I was not ready for that. How could I be? But actually, I don't think that's what the campaign was really about. I think it was about those events that are out of the ordinary, but you can still deal with them. But only if you've thought about it and you're ready for them. If you've done a defensive driving course, you'll know some tips to be ready for the unexpected such as these ones, things like keeping your distance, avoiding distractions and so on, maybe not having children in the car or things like that. (laughs) That makes you a better driver. (laughs) Of course, some of those things you can't prepare for. But we, we can't really expect the unexpected, can we? But we can be as prepared as possible to deal with it safely when it comes. After all, We're talking about life or death situations when we're talking about road safety. Today's passage in the Gospel of John is talking about the same sort of thing. In this passage we'll encounter two groups of people who are completely unprepared for Jesus. As a result, both groups handle their encounter with Jesus very poorly. For them, it's an unexpected encounter. And Jesus is an unexpected saviour. Of course, John has already prepared his readers, us, for this unexpected behaviour and the resulting rejection. At the start of his gospel, he wrote about Jesus. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. So reading John, we, the readers, are expecting Jesus to have some problems with the Jewish people. But it's, it's still rather surprising how this happens. And I want to look at this account in chapter 5 from three different angles, three different contexts. Each context will teach us something so that we can be ready for the unexpected ourselves. Those three contexts are... The historical context, that symbol next to that is a um, Bar Kokhba shekel piece with a picture of the temple on it from the 2nd century AD. 
the religious context, I think he might be able to just make out what that is, the Ten Commandments, and the theological context. So let's dive in to the historical context in the first part of John chapter 5. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda, with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame or paralysed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Now, this first part of the chapter gives us the historical context. Jesus is up in Jerusalem for one of the religious festivals. And just north of the temple grounds, so in this picture you see in the middle of the left there, there's a sort of a, a walled area there. That's the edge of the temple. And just to the, to the north of the temple, which is to the right in this picture, right in the middle of the left picture, you can see a large double pool. That's the pool of Bethesda. As the account makes clear, this was an alternative location of healing. Alternative to what, you may ask? An alternative to the temple, of course. There's evidence that this was a shrine of a pagan god of healing after the time of Jesus, and, and such places are usually founded on older pagan shrines. So it's very likely that this was a place of pagan healing in Jesus' time. And the sick man's account of the operation of the healing pool certainly sounds like that of a typical ancient pagan healing pool. When Jesus asks the sick man if he wants to be healed, his reply, I can't, sir, reveals his fixation on the legendary healing properties of the pool. The temple and the God of creation who dwells there, just, just nearby, doesn't even enter his mind. Just to be clear about what's happening here, this man has not asked Jesus to heal him. He's shown no faith in Jesus. He barely even pays attention to him. And yet, Jesus knows his condition. He knows this man has been unable to move freely for 38 years. That's virtually an entire lifetime. Jesus' response to this indifferent reply is completely unexpected to us. After all, doesn't Jesus require people's faith so that he can heal them? And it's, it's equally unexpected to the sick man. 
Jesus tells him to get up, take his mat and walk out. And he does. Instantly. Effortlessly. It's, it's almost as if he's always been able to walk. Now there's very, there are many unexpected aspects to this event. That Jesus was here at this pagan pool rather than in the temple. That Jesus healed somebody who barely acknowledged him, let alone place their faith in him. That, he, that the healed man seems completely unmoved by his healing. Now, of course, when you think about it, the whole point of the Son of God coming as the man Jesus was to go into the world, the world where sinful, lost people lie helpless. So when, when you really think about it, of course Jesus was here in a, in a, a pagan temple rather than in the temple of God. As, as Ian said last week, Jesus is into smashing down walls between God and men and that's what he's doing here it's as if and and it's Jesus who has the power to heal it's not our faith God may choose to graciously constrain himself on the basis of our lack of faith but our lack of faith doesn't prevent him from doing anything God can do whatever he wills as for the healed man's motives and his behaviour, well, that's still unclear at this stage. But before we move on, what does this event have to say to us in the historical context? I think we need to question ourselves. How often are we so fixated on a particular form of salvation that we completely ignore Jesus? How often does his unexpected grace towards us go unrecognised? You know that we can treat church as a substitute for the Saviour. We can become so fixated on singing, on serving, on studying, that we forget who it's all about, who it's pointing to. So what can we, be, what can we do to be ready for our unexpected Saviour? Let me suggest two things. First, we must be focused on God's presence. The sick man was focused on this possibly pagan pool, ignoring the looming presence of God's temple, the place where God had come traditionally to encounter his people. But of course, there's no temple today, right? But rather, the Holy Spirit has made each of us temples. How often do we meditate on this? How often do we seek to encounter the indwelling spirit in prayer or worship? If we busy ourselves with external work, whether it be supporting our families or supporting the church, won't we miss the Holy Spirit's internal work on our souls? Won't we miss the moment that we are freed of 38 years of bondage? The spiritual practices that we talk about each month here at BCC are ancient practices designed to help us do just this, focus on God's presence. And this past month we've been focusing on prayer. There are of course many types of prayer, but all prayer is communication with God. 
If we wish to communicate with God, we must first come into God's presence. And Jesus gave us helpful advice when he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like on and on like the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Prayer is about God, Jesus said. It's not about us. It's not about our performance. And it's, it's not about our words. The focus must be on God. When we're focused on God, we're ready for his work in our lives. Even if it is unexpected. I wouldn't have been ready to move to Tokyo as a young adult, one year out of uni, if I hadn't first prayed for God to get me out of a spiritual rut. And I could see that as, a, as an answer to that prayer. And I'm sure you all have similar stories. The second thing we must do is to recognise both God's work and its significance to us. The healed man paid no attention to Jesus, allowing him to slip away unknown. And he then seems to have taken his healing for granted, right? Being more interested in getting the Jewish leaders off his back than getting to know his saviour. The author of Hebrews describes the Christian perspective this way. Therefore, in chapter 12, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Just as Jesus could endure the infinite horror of the cross only by fixing his eyes on the infinite reward of eternity with the Father, we too can only thrive in this broken world by recognising the past, present and future work of Christ, our Redeemer. So to avoid the mistake of the sick man in the story who ignores his saviour, 
we must focus on Jesus' presence and recognize that he's not just a good guy, but he is our saviour. Then we will be truly ready for any wonderful, unexpected thing that Jesus chooses to do in our lives. Now, the second context is the religious context. That context becomes very clear as we continue to read on in chapter 5. So let's do that. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse will happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Again, let's be clear about what's happening here. A man who couldn't move for 38 years is instantly healed to the point where he can carry about a sleeping mat and the religious leader's first concern is that he's carrying that mat on the Sabbath. When we're confronted with the unexpected, with events that challenge our understanding of the world, isn't it sad how often we respond by focusing on trivialities? Why do we do that? I think a big part of the reason is because those trivialities are in our control. And we, we feel that we have to be in control. And when unexpected things are happening, we, we reach for anything that we can control, even if it's beside the point. And I think that's what the religious leaders are doing. They're desperately trying to maintain control That's why they jump on the healed man's reference to the one who healed him. And John's amusing aside of how Jesus had disappeared into the crowd emphasises both the healed man's disinterest and Jesus' humility. You can't see Benny Hinn doing that sort of thing, right? I just healed someone, I'll just disappear. When the healed man encounters Jesus later, finally in the temple and is rebuked for some unspecified sin, he immediately rats Jesus out to the authorities, probably hoping to avoid any further trouble for himself. Instead, that trouble finds Jesus as the leaders attack him over the Sabbath. Now, I'm sure you've heard many accounts of how the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time had constructed elaborate rules around the Sabbath, these were intended to help faithful Jews obey the fourth commandment, 
What's the fourth commandment? Remember to observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners living with you. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. That's why we have seven-day weeks. This is a pretty detailed commandment, right? There's a lot there. And you'd think that that would be enough, But the rabbis had obsessed about one word, that word that you can see up the top there, work, to the point where they had created 39 different classes of things that were categorised as work. And carrying a mat, guess what? It fell into one of those classes. Now Jesus' understanding of the Sabbath was quite different as his actions and statements made clear. But in this confrontation, Jesus doesn't argue about the definition of work. Rather, he presents an unexpected defense for his attitude to the Sabbath. So let's see what Jesus says. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. What on earth? Like, why, why didn't Jesus say, look, look, your Sabbath rules are just human rules. Focus on God's word, not your own. After all, he actually says that elsewhere in the Gospels. But here, here he equates himself with God, making a bad situation worse, at least in terms of his relationship with the religious leaders. I think we should pause here to explain something about the Jewish understanding of God and the Sabbath. You see, the rabbis of Jesus' time, they thought a lot. You know, they had their 39 classes of work, but they had lots of other amazing ideas. And they accepted that God worked on the Sabbath. They understood that God worked from the Sabbath from at least two pieces of evidence. This is a brilliant piece of logic. Human beings were born on the Sabbath, right? Even back then. They still are today. We have a midwife in our, in our small group, and she's almost always helping someone... On a Sunday, babies love to be born on whatever the Sabbath is. (laughs) Uh, And human beings die on the Sabbath. So what's the point of that? Well, only God can give life. So when people are born on the Sabbath, that's God working. Only when people die, they need to be judged. Only God can judge them. That's work. So when people die on the Sabbath, God is working. 
So it was clear that God was working on the Sabbath. How did he get away with this? Well, they said, you know, the whole world, the whole universe is God's home. So he's just doing a bit of light housework. He's not doing anything that's classed as one of their big categories of work. So he can get away with it. He wasn't violating the Sabbath. I'm serious. This is, this is how the Jewish uh, rabbis thought of the Sabbath. Perhaps they thought too much. Um, but that's why when Jesus appeals to God's continued work and says that his is more of the same, the Jews immediately understood his claim to be equal with God and perhaps even in competition with God. It's also why in Jesus' following explanation that we'll read in a moment, he points to the way that he brings life and he judges the dead. Exactly the same activities that the rabbis understood God as doing on the Sabbath. Jesus really wasn't messing around with this claim to be equal to God the Father, was he? So let's look at how he confronts the leaders. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. When Jesus says that, it means listen up. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will be truly astonished. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge. See what Jesus is doing here? He's identifying himself completely with God the Father. Like the Father, he gives life and he judges the dead. But in the process... He's pointing out how he's, he's not a rival to God. Rather, he's completely unified with the Father. Jesus does nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. To read this fifth chapter of John is to hear Jesus claiming to be God and to be one with the Father. There are people such as members of, of, of some Christian cults who say that Jesus never claims to be God. I don't know how they can read John chapter 5 and say that. The Jewish leaders clearly understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, so it's hardly a new interpretation. But yes, this is unexpected. The idea that God would come as a humble man, the son of a carpenter, an itinerant preacher, and at the same time, God the Father is still in heaven. How weird is that? I mean, God in two places, one God. 
And yet how important, how important is it that we understand that Jesus is not merely a miracle worker or a wise teacher. Jesus insists that his identity as God must be accepted, no matter how unexpected that may be. Nonetheless, Jesus does seem to understand how strange this appears. And in the last part of chapter 5, he gives an apologetics presentation. Apologetics. Apologetics, for those who don't know, is the discipline of giving reasons for why the Christian faith is true and trustworthy. It's actually quite a popular discipline nowadays. I have a master's degree in it. And it's important, but it's often neglected because it's important for those who who don't believe but also for those who do now I wish I had time to unpack Jesus elegant list of evidences for his identity and actually I want to do that this afternoon in our Bible study uh, he appeals to five witnesses to God the Father John the Baptist the scriptures the famous lawgiver Moses and his own miraculous deeds, so his own works. And despite this abundant evidence, the Jewish leaders stubbornly refuse to accept Jesus' identity. It's, it's, it's as if a, a multi-million dollar lotto winner wanted to reject their winnings because the number that they'd won with wasn't the number they actually wanted to write down. You know, their hand slipped and it looked like the winning number, but that's not what they intended. And they're like, no, I don't want that millions millions of dollars. That's the sort of stubborn craziness we're talking about here. So what does this say to us, this religious context? Well, we engage in this sort of stubborn craziness all the time. Why? Because, because we value being in control above everything else. We're human beings. That's, that's, that's the nature of our fallen uh, human attitude. When God offers us paradise, but it costs the loss of control over our own lives, we balk. We balk at this. Even as Christians, even as people who have been transformed, we struggle with this, right? Is it just me? There are so many stories I could share about how we fight God for control. But since this is Father's Day, let me talk about the struggles of being a father. I have one daughter, Atalia. She's in her third year of university. She's got a couple more to go. You'd think that after several years of being away from home, I would have stopped worrying about her. In fact, before she moved out, I was looking forward to the freedom of being an empty nester. <laughs> how silly, how silly such thoughts now appear. Just totally silly. The thing is, as a father or a mother, of course, we care about our children. And we want the best for them. And yet the world is such a crazy, chaotic, unjust place. 
And we're so much more aware of that than they are. When they become teenagers, they think they're in control, that they can navigate the world. How crazy are they? And it's, it's so tempting to hover over them, protecting them in a carefully controlled environment. But what does this say to our children about our trust in God? After all, we, we aren't really in any more control of the world than our kids are. Being an adult doesn't give us control over the world. And we really have no control over their choices, no matter how much we might strive to. But if we can step back and show our faith in God's provision and protection, engaging in prayer instead of pampering, intercession instead of interference, then won't our kids benefit from that? Or our grandkids. When they see that we don't merely resonate with Jesus, that we know him as the way and the truth, won't they see God at work in and through us? I think it's worth remembering the Apostle Peter's advice in his first letter. And and Lynn said something very similar to this in her prayer before. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honour. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. Now, let's hurry on to our final context, the theological context. We're almost there. In John's Gospel, Jesus performs only seven miracles. Now, seven is a number that means completeness, so it's not a random number. John actually calls them signs. And he hastens to explain towards the end of his Gospel that the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these, these seven, are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. In order to understand why John deliberately chose each of his seven signs out of this multitude of signs, we need to ask, what does this particular sign say about Jesus being the Son of God, the Saviour of humanity? What does this miracle say that's unique to it? So what does this third sign tell us? How does it help us believe that Jesus is the Messiah? In his first sign turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana, we saw how Jesus was Lord over creation. Just as he's the one who causes the plants to grow, uh, with the same power he can transform water into wine without the intermediate steps of growing, harvesting, crushing and fermenting grapes. We also saw how unexpected this was except to Mary, of course, who asked Jesus to do it. In the second sign, again at Cana, Jesus showed that he had the power to heal and that that power was not constrained by location. 
a father came and asked Jesus to heal his son and Jesus said, he's healed, go home. He is the healer of the world. Again, this was unexpected. The father had requested that Jesus come to his home to heal his son. But Jesus insisted that the man return to his family, trusting that his son would be healed. And the demonstration of that power brought faith to the whole family. This third sign illustrates Jesus' power over both the pagan gods and the absence of faith. You could say that this sign demonstrates Jesus' sovereignty. His authority and power are absolute. Nothing can stand against them. No other supernatural power. No human will. Of course, Jesus often constrains his power when people refuse to believe, but it's his choice not to act. It's not an inability to act. And we often forget this. We often forget how powerful Jesus really is. His humble humanity makes it, it so easy for us to see him as being limited like we are. But that's simply not true. Even in these first three signs, we can already see that Jesus has power over all creation, that his power is not limited by his physical presence or location, which is fortunate for us now because his location is in heaven, not here. And his power is not limited by supernatural enemies or a lack of human faith, which again is, is fortunate for us because we do have supernatural enemies and we often have a lack of faith. Instead, his power is sovereign and absolute. So what does this say to us? Jesus has power over every aspect of the universe and of our lives. How humbling is Paul's word to the Ephesian Christians when he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We can't take credit for our position as God's children. That's all God's work. The only difference between us and those who don't know Christ is the grace of God. Even the good deeds we do through the power of the Holy Spirit were planned for us by God. Now I'm not trying to teach reformed theology. I'm simply sharing what the Bible tells us. God is sovereign. He rules over everything and it's his choices that matter. Jesus is not just a preference. He's a king. He's the king. That seems unexpected to us, especially in the modern Australian context, where our own choices mean everything. Even the Australian aged care system is called my aged care. How Australian is that? But the church is not called my church or our church. 
sensible churches. The church is called the body of Christ, or as here at Burley, the church of Christ. The church of Christ, not of us. So let's recap. We must focus on God's presence through prayer and other means. We must remember the significance of God's work and we must let go of our own desire to control everything and trust God's control. And we must recognise that Jesus really is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The point is, our lives are not our own. And when we understand this, we're ready for the unexpected. The unexpected working of our Lord Jesus. In fact, we will expect the unexpected. How exciting is that? What thrills do we yet have to experience in the hands of our loving God? When we let go of our desire to control, the unexpected becomes joy, not, not terror. Remember Jesus' teaching on prayer that I mentioned earlier about the going into your secret room and not babbling. Well, immediately after that, guess what he says? He taught his disciples how to pray. So let's pray this wonderful prayer from our Lord together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's now respond to our wonderful God in worship and song.